Well, I am, I am loving the, the prophetic. I, I really relate to what Danny had to say about uh, looking past, how God wants to look past uh, the obvious to the ones that are out in the field. And, and my, my story relates to that. I mean, I, I grew up in the church, but I, I just did not understand it for the life of me for 22 years. I had no idea why people would raise hands. Uh, I had no idea why people were clapping, no idea why people were dancing, drinking out of very tiny cups. Uh, I just did not understand it at all. And uh, it didn't seem like all that much fun. It didn't seem like it was, uh, I mean, just not even really made all that much sense. It just was just beyond me. So as soon as I could, I was done with it. And I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And uh, so I'm not the guy who grew up and did youth ministry, college ministry, you know, went forward to go play in a church when I was 19 or anything like that. I mean, I was just, I was out on the whole scene. And, uh, but something happened to me in the summer, in the spring of 1998. I was my, I was my senior year of college. I was, uh, it was spring break. You guys do spring break in Canada? You know what I'm talking about? Colleges do spring break. Okay. And so I was all by myself. I actually wasn't by myself. I was with these two cats uh, that were pretty sorry cats. One had a broken front arm and, and the other one was just really big and, and, and like, and it was just, it was just me and these two cats. And it was really, I was kind of mildly depressed. Um, I, uh, I was, I still am driven, but I was pretty driven for success and, and, and money and in the, in the whole like job search thing, graduating wasn't going well. I just found out that this exclusive relationship I was in wasn't so exclusive and, uh, and a few other things. So I was just really depressed and I didn't, I didn't really know what to do. And my parents had gotten me this Bible um, about a year and a half ago. It was the Christmas of 1996. They bought me a leather bound Bible with my name on it in hopes that I would read it. And I, and I hadn't, it was still in the plastic, but it was right by, it happened to be right by, on the, on the nightstand by my bed. And so I opened it up and I didn't know really, I was just searching for something. I was by myself, just searching for something. And I didn't know where to start, but like just kind of growing up, you know, like the gospels and Psalms and Proverbs are a big deal. So I started reading in Psalms or back then it was Psalms. And I get to, I get to, um, now, what is this job? And like, I don't get it anyway. So we get to, I get, I get, I'm reading through Psalms and I get to Psalm 8110. And um, it's where it says, open your mouth wide and I'll fill it. And it, it you know, it's that moment where, you know, it kind of jumps out on the page and grabs you. And I've never had that experience before. I didn't know what anyone was talking about in and I, I, so I read these words, but I didn't just read these words. I felt like I could hear them. And I remember actually like looking up in my room, thinking, thinking like God was in my room speaking these, these words to me. And it was, there's two things about that moment that, that changed my life forever. One was, it's the first time that I knew that I knew that I knew that God was real. I mean, I just didn't know it in my knower. I knew it, I knew it deep in my knower. I knew it, it's not in my head, but deep here. And I knew that he was real. He, he made himself real. The second thing is it was, it was obvious to me that he was, he was inviting me into something. That if you open your mouth wide to me, if you open your life to me, all these things that you're searching for in a relationship, in a career, uh, in money, I mean, like I was like, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a bunch of money. I'm gonna retire by the age I'm 40. I'm 48. Ask me how it's going. It's not going too well. Uh, let me tell you. Um, but anyway, so I was just like, if you open your life, if you open your life to me, um, I'll fill it and I'll satisfy it. And you read on, it's like you know the honey from the honeycomb. And but then it goes on and says, but 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 my people were stiff-necked, and they did not open their life to me. And so I knew in that moment, like I had this sense that I have a decision to make. Like God's leading to me. He's revealed himself to me as real. And he's inviting me into this adventure. And I just, I don't know why. Well, I know why now, but I didn't know why then. But I'm just like, I'm just, okay, yes, I'm going to do this. And I didn't really know what to do with it. I, 
I just kind of like kept it to myself and I graduated college, I got home, and I went back and I stumbled into the church that I now lead called Jubilee. It was a church plant that's a year old at the time. And I just told him that story. I said, hey, I don't know if this makes any sense, but I had this, this is the thing that happened to me. And it, my life just kind of took off. I mean, every day is a shock to me. Every day there's like someone to love and someone to care and someone to pray for. And he just takes, he's just taken me through this experience of opening up this world called the local church and my part to play. I just didn't think I had a part to play. I did not think I wanted to be a part. And even if I did, I knew for sure they didn't want me to be a part. That is the church. And so I really relate to that idea of, 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 of God, like going past the obvious out to the ones and to the field. And that's been my story. I love what it says in in John 1, it says, those who've believed in him, he's given them self, he's giving them the right to be called the children of God. And that's what we are here as a church, is that we are the family of God, his people, his church. And we have this confidence in his work that we're doing. But as you know, not everyone has this confidence. In fact, many would say, like, the church is not on the way up. The church is on the way down. It's outdated. It's marginal. And from a human perspective, I might agree with you. In fact, the, the idea that the church has made it this far, so it's 2023, the idea that the church has made it this far is almost unexplainable when you think about it. And so I want to take you through a few things. Consider this with me. I got a question for you. Slide number one. How did a first century cult birth in the armpit of the Roman Empire, whose leader was rejected by his own people, and crucified by the Romans, survive and thrive in the face of state-funded resistance. How did it, how did it come about that this Nazarene sect, so Jesus was from Nazarene, so he called it Nazarene sect, would eventually be embraced by the very empire that sought to extinguish it for 300 years? This is a mystery actually historians have pondered. I don't know if you know this or not, but historians ponder, like, how did this work? How did this happen? How is it possible that the church even made it out of the first century? Karen Armstrong in her book, Fields of Blood, says this, against all odds, by the third century, Christianity had become a force to be reckoned with. We still don't really understand how this came about. The only way that it makes sense is if you and I take the eyewitness account, the testimony of those that, you know, in the Bible, uh, that we take the eyewitness account seriously. Because it, it's incredible when you think about it. Sandwiched between the temple and Caesar, sandwiched between religious power and military power, sandwiched in there is this day laborer from Galilee that would become the most famous person in all of the earth. In fact, history literally hinges on his birth, AC, you know, uh, BCAD. It's surprising to me. I mean, it's shocking to me when you think about it. When you think about how the church feels now, the vulnerability that the church feels now, how in the world, if we feel vulnerable, how in the world did it even make it out of the first century? How do we even know who Jesus is? But he did not, it did not only make it through there, but Jesus, this day laborer from Galilee, would spark a movement that would not only mean something in his generation, but he would become the most followed man in all of history among the most diverse group of people in all of history. And to add to this amazement, if you're not impressed already, Jesus predicted this. In uh, north of Israel, in a place that we would call modern-day Syria, way up north, he gathered his guys together, and he had this uh, to say to them. He had some questions for him. Matthew 16, 13 says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, that's the modern-day Syria, he asked his disciples, who, does, who do they say the Son of Man is? Who do people say that... Uh, the son of man is. And, and basically, you know, what's the word on the street? And they said to him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Basically, a good teacher, better than most, but still just one of many. 
Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? That's the question, right? Uh, that's a question for all of us is it's one thing, um, you know, it's one thing what other people say, but what do we say? And Simon Peter um, in verse 16 declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the anointed one. You are the long awaited Messiah, the promised king who would, who would bring this uh, new uh, kingdom here on earth. And, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now, a little fun fact. I think it's fun anyway. Simon means rock, right? Simon, you are rock. And uh, Barjona just means son of John. So Peter's real identity is none other than Rock Johnson. And so anyway, uh, you like that, didn't you? Yeah, you, I know. I knew you would. I knew you would. I wasn't... Um, Jesus says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Our confidence, brothers and sisters, is not in our reasoning abilities. Our confidence isn't even in that we have the truth. Our confidence is that God, in his grace, will reveal this truth. I mean, I'm so grateful that he revealed his truth to me. There is no searching for God from me. There was no discovering. There was no me figuring it all out. This was pure grace, him revealing himself to me. So our confidence is that he will reveal this, that, that when we confess the name of Jesus, when you and I confess the name of Jesus, when you and I lift up the name of Jesus and we live lives built upon the name of Jesus, it will resonate deep within those that the Holy Spirit is revealing Jesus to. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So I'm doing a, a talk on uh, Jesus and, and gender. And the staff is like, hey, like, could, are you going to share something to the church that's going to help them be able to explain why we believe, you know, to their friends at school? And I said, no, I'm not because it's foolishness to them. It just is foolishness. I, I'll do my best. I think I did all right. But at the end of the day, it is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is why we lean on the Bible so much, because as it is preached, spiritual insight is given. You see, I'm not up here. People up here preaching are not trying to make dumb people smart. They're not trying to make educated people learn, but blind people see and dead people come to life. And it takes the power of God, not the power of persuasion is God reveals it. And this is what we learn here. This is where our confidence lies. Our confidence is in him. So in verse 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my ecclesia, my called out community, my called out community for my renown. Now, it's important to know. This is really important for us to know, for those of us who want to have confidence in what Jesus is building, is that Jesus did not come out of the blue with this. This is not secondary or even peripheral to his role as Messiah. But the fact that he is saying, now is the time, now I am going to build my church is central to his role as the Messiah. It wasn't like, hey, I'm Messiah. And then, oh yeah, I'm gonna do this little thing over here called the church. The fact that he is going to gather a, a community of to himself is the very center of the eternal plan of God. And you don't have to take my word for it. Ephesians 3, Paul says, and to bring to light, this is his passion, to bring to light everyone that is the plan of the mystery hidden in the, for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the multi, you know, his wisdom is like a diamond. It has all these contours, it's multifaceted might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's plan, that to have a people 
and he's going to get it through his son. And he is going to get it. And we know how it's started and we know how it's going to end. It's all going to end with all of us around the throne, every tribe, every tongue, worshiping and declaring that he is worthy, he is worthy, he is worthy. And this is, this is all, throughout the Old, all throughout the Old Testament. You hear about the Messiah is going to gather this community. This isn't like some faddish thing. One of the most obvious places is 2 Samuel 7. He says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is what Jesus is talking about. Uh, The church isn't some side project of Jesus. It is at the very center of the eternal plan of God. It's plan A, there is no plan B, and it's completely and utterly constituted around the person of Jesus, built by Jesus, for Jesus, centered on his very nature. He says, I will build my church. He's building something he calls his very own. It is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the families of the world will be blessed through Jesus. And again, I've already spoiled it, but I'll go ahead and read it. It's in my notes. Revelation 7. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne before, and the throne before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. This promise of Jesus, I will build my church from every nation, every tribe. It's happening. I don't know if you know this or not, but the church is by far the most diverse group of people beyond, and I hate to use this language about Christianity, beyond any religion or any philosophy. And it's not even close. It's like it's undisputed. I mean, I, I wish I would have brought the, the different stats of where Christianity comes from. Most, most religions are concentrated in, from their origin. So, you know, Islam in the Middle East, you know, Buddha and uh, Buddhism and Hinduism in India and, and Southeast Asia and secular humanism, the, the air that we breathe, the one that talks about diversity and how things need to be diverse. It, people who believe in secular humanism are 50% more likely to be male and 46 times more likely to be white. And when most people think about Christianity, they think about a white male, which I get the irony, I am a white male. And I get it, because we're in the West. But if you were to aggregate all of the Christians all over the world, the picture of Christianity is a black female. The most likely person in the world to believe what we believe is a black female. It is, he is building his church from every tribe and every tongue, and he is getting it. it it's the past, the present, of the fu- and the future church that we have in mind when we talk about the mind of Christ. And I bring this up because if, you, if all you do is boil down your church to a two-hour experience, 1.73 times a month, that's how often we go, 1.73 times a month, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. You want in on a secret. The people who worship the most, and, and you guys know this, the people who worship the most aren't the extroverts. Um, it's the ones who see the gathered community called the church as a center of God's plan and purpose. I mean, I, do you, I don't know if you guys listen to old hymns. I love this old hymn on that bright and golden morning. This is past. So you got to think about the past the present and the future church. When you think about the church, you got to think about what God has done in the past, what God is doing now, and in what he will do. And I love this old hymn. On that bright and golden morning, when the Son of Man shall come, and the radiance of his glory we shall see, when from every tribe and nation he shall call his people home, what a gathering of the ransom that will be. What a gathering, what a gathering, what a gathering of the ransom in the summer land of love. What a gathering, what a gathering 
of the ransom in the happy home above. And this is what David is like crying out for when he says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for the joy of the living God. He's not talking about the physical temple. He's talking about the people of God, his called out community, the church. And so Jesus says, I will build my church. And then he adds this in verse 18. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. There's two things about this. First of all, this is, this is a, this means that the church is to be offensive. So like when it says the gates of hell, most times when people talk about this, they talk about like, oh, you, you know, hell, you know, hell will storm, but it won't do anything against the church. But like the, the, the hell is not on the offense. Hell is on the defense. Like I've never been attacked by a gate. Like I've never been walking down and been like, oh my gosh, I'm a, there's a gate chasing me. But most Christians live that way. A gate isn't, doesn't attack you. A gate tries to keep you out. And it's like, man, the gates of hell will not prevail. But more than this, it's the gates, it's talking about Hades. Uh, and it's more generally talking about the realm of the dead. And Jesus is saying something even more profound because as it, he says, it says, I am building something in the church that death cannot stop. That Peter, your death won't stop it. Matthew, your death won't stop it. Luke, your death, not even my death will stop it. Nothing says is going to stop what I'm about to start. And these men, the boys really, I should say, and other eyewitnesses would document for why this movement has made it to all the way to 2023. They documented why his death was not the death of the movement. And the reason why his death was not the death of the movement is that he would do what no other dead person has done, which is he didn't stay dead. But he rose again from the grave. And it was after his resurrection and the ascension that the movement began. And he said, I will, be build, I will build my church and nothing, 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 nothing is going to stop it. And I, this is like my favorite prophecy in all the Bible, this prophecy of Jesus, because, well, it includes me. And, uh, you know, I like prophecies including me, but includes all of us together. Um, so from, th and then he goes on in verse 21. And this, I mean, I could just go on and on just about how this is mentioned, his, his, this, this community of, of God and his, his plan and his purpose. But in verse 21, it says from that, in Matthew 16, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders. So this is talking about how this is all going to happen the chief priests and the, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Now you talk about like a spiritual high and a spiritual low. Like, I don't know if you guys, like, I don't know if you guys ever do like high low at dinner time. You guys do that? Like, hey, tell me like the best part of your day and like the worst part of your day. And can you imagine like Peter with his wife that night at dinner? Hey, honey, how was work today? Oh man, it was really good. Jesus told me I'm going to be like the anchor of the new church. Uh, he goes, that's the good news. The bad news is he said, I remind him of Satan. And so, um, so, you know, when you average it out, not a bad day. You know what I'm saying? Like, not a bad day. I like to focus on the pop, uh, the, you know, the positive. My, cu my cup is half full. But which, by the way, I mean, you guys know stuff like, and this is why you can like really trust the Bible, like authentic. I mean, no way, no way would you ever leave that in there. Uh, if this is made up. But, but Jesus, Jesus says, you are a stumbling block to me. He says this to Peter. This is why you're a stumbling block to me. You do not have the mind, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, you're thinking about victory. You're thinking about vengeance against the Romans. You're thinking about prosperity here on earth. I'm thinking about something much, much greater, something much more eternal than those things. And, and this is what Satan tries to do in our life. He tries to get us to reshape Jesus according to our liking and preferences. And the strongest rebuke uh, of Jesus recorded in scripture was here that he gave to Peter. And it was instigated by Peter trying to force Jesus into a mold of what he assumed the, the Messiah should be. And in verse 22, Jesus explains how the Messiah has to suffer 
you know, and Peter takes him aside and, and says, no, this should never happen to you. This should never happen to you. And we don't do exactly what, what Peter did. Like we don't, you know, that they, they assume that Messiah meant military and political victory to overthrow Rome. And, and we may not think that, although some of us might. But we assume, here's what we do. We assume that Jesus puts us in the center. We live in a, in a me-focused uh, culture, swimming in consumerism, and we envision Jesus who's like one part genie, one part financial advisor, and one part soul care specialist. And he's here to like, he's like big, you know, comfortable blanket and comforter. And this is why he's here. And this is what he wants to do. He wants to comfort us. He wants to, and he wants to do those things, but we also have to see this as a satanic distortion because we have to let Jesus be who Jesus is, which means that sometimes he'll contradict you and confuse you. And I just want to throw out here just for free that that's actually a good thing. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is 1 John, I think it's 3.20. It's, if it's like, well, how is it your favorite verse if you don't even know it? Well, okay, just bear with me. Um, it just is, all right? It says that when, when God is, uh, when our hearts condemn us. So some people say like, you know, they, like, they don't want a God who will contradict them. But I was like, well, how, how can, if God doesn't contradict you, how can he ever help you? Especially when you hate yourself. And 1 John 3.20 says that, says when our hearts condemn us, he's greater than our hearts. And we need someone who's, who's over us and above us, who's, who challenges us and, and, and corrects us and, and contradicts us. So and then we get verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The, the cross, of course, was not an ornamental piece of jewelry or a popular tattoo option. In this culture, it was a horrific symbol of death and shame. And Jesus was telling them, giving them a clue, like, man, this church is going to make it. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen a very specific way. It's going to happen when the way I say it's going to happen and anyone who would come after me and follow me um, it's not always going to be comfortable. It's going to feel like death and it's going to feel like shame because that's the path that I'm on. Salvation is free. It costs us nothing. But following Jesus will eventually cost you something and maybe everything. And there are all kinds of things that Jesus provides for you when you follow him. He, prov he, he assures you heaven um, he, he assures that, you know, he's going to work out all things for good. He just doesn't assure you that it will always be comfortable. Sometimes he'll tell you to do things that you'd rather not do. Sometimes he'll tell you to end a relationship that you don't want to end. Sometimes he'll tell you to serve someone that you don't want to serve. Sometimes he'll, 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 he'll tell you to forego career advancement, uh, for kingdom advancement. Sometimes he'll, he'll, he'll ask you to make a financial sacrifice. Sometimes uh, he'll um, tell you to forgive someone that you don't want to forgive, deny your desires, to, uh, to stand up for something that you'd rather be silent about or to be silent about that something that you want to be vocal about. Uh, sometimes he'll take you places that you just don't want to go. At some point in your life, obedience to Jesus is going to take you in a direction that's like 180 degrees than the direction you're going. It just it's happened at least four times in my life. I mean, 180. I'm not saying like I'm like a few degrees to the left. That happens, I mean, all the time. It's happening right now, actually. And so um, goes, but it, the 180, like I'm, I'm going this way. And it's like, no, you're not. You're going, you're going this way. Obedience led Jesus, check this out. Obedience led Jesus to do something that in his flesh, he did not want to do. He's in the garden. And he's like, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. I don't want to do it. 
Can you, do you, do you think of Jesus that way? I don't want to do, Father, what you want me to do. God's okay with that. He really is. But we need to say the, the next line, which is not, not my will, but your will. Not my will, but yours. And then it says, for the joy. So it's not all down, it's not all gloom and doom, because we read in Hebrews, it says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So God will give you inexplicable joy in the midst of it. The impact of the church has been breathtaking. Um, Bart Ehrman, who's actually an atheist, who wrote, um, he's a New Testament. I don't understand this, but he's an, he's, a new, he's an atheistic New Testament scholar. He said this, Christianity not only took over an empire, it radically altered the lives of those living in it. However one evaluates the merits of the case, no one can de deny that it was the most monumental cultural transformation our world has ever seen. It was a revolution that affected government practices, legislation, art, literature, music, philosophy, and and on the more even fundamental level, the very understanding billions of people had about what it means to be human. Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city on a hill. If you, if you hold fast to me, hold fast to the word of life, you'll pop out like lights among a crooked generation. That's exactly what Christians do. Now, these are... These are U.S. stats on the church, but I'm going to assume that they're, they translate to you. But in the U.S., Christians adopt, here, this is just some, because I know you hear a lot of bad things about the church and Christians and what they do. Don't know. Let me, let's do a fact check. Christians adopt more children than any other population segment, and it's not even close. Church attenders donate more time and money to charity than anyone in America by far. They are more likely to give money and volunteer time specifically to help immigrants in their city. The higher the church attendance in a city, the lower its burglary, larceny, robbery, assault, homicide. Regular church attendance significantly improves mental health, five times less likely to commit suicide, and the only population segment to experience an increase in mental health in 2020 were regular church-going Christians. Church attendance is crazy good for children. Higher GPAs, higher satisfaction with family life, higher satisfaction in friendships, 33% more likely to avoid drinking, smoking, drugs, sexual promiscuity. And check this out. A 2016 Harvard School of Public Health study showed that people who attend church weekly on average live seven times longer. Excuse me, live seven years longer. Let me say that one more time. <laughs> This isn't being recorded. Come on, we're gonna back this up. A 2016 Harvard School of Public Health study showed that people live seven years longer. People who attend church weekly on average live seven years longer. Some people say, I don't have time to go to church. Church attendance literally gives you more time. I've done the math. And it is impossible to not have time to go to church. Uh, anyway, so I'm just, I'll leave you to pray about that. But anyway, so if you want to be a part of what historically has transformed what it means to be human, solve the world's orphan crisis, eliminate poverty, love the immigrant, reduce crime, improve mental health, raise better kids, and literally prolong your life I wanna invite you to be a part of what God is doing through his local church. And you and I have this opportunity to steward, and this is where it becomes personal. Um, in Acts 13, it says, David served the purposes of God in his own generation. And you and I can only serve the purposes of God in our generation. We cannot serve the purposes of God in the 90s. And we cannot serve the purposes of God in the future. We can only serve the purposes of God in 2023. Which means, like Paul says, I am forgetting what lies behind 
and I'm looking ahead. And I just want to, I want to invite every person in this room to not live a faith that's date stamped. 1992, back when I was in college, when before we had kids. Like our faith is today that we are called, we are called to steward what God has given us in this generation. And the question is, is will we give it? Um, uh, will we give to it, excuse me, and make it stronger for our children and their children? Or will we take from it and make it weaker? Because I got all out of it I want. I'm going to heaven. My kids are going to heaven. I like this preacher. I like this preacher over here, this church ministry, this podcast. Little this, little that. Kind of form my own thing. And we, the church over the past couple of years, we have made this so easy to do it. We've made it so easy. Uh, I mean, we're trying to connect. We're trying to, but we've made it so easy for you to disengage. But let me just say this. You are the church. You are our church. I'm part of your church today. And you are your church. So let me ask you a question. What kind of church do you want to be a part of? You think the church should be a loving community? Then love. You think the church should be a serving community? Then serve. You think the church should be a gracious community? Then be gracious. Be forgiving. You think the church should, should uh, reach out to the poor? Then reach out to the poor. You think the church should be wildly generous? Then be wildly generous. You are the church. You are our church. And you are your church. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12. Now you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. You're all eaches. Each one of you. But if the foot should say, by the way, if a foot ever talks, I mean, you've got other problems. But if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. Translation, if you don't feel like you're a part of the body, does not mean that you're not a part of the body. A disconnected body, I don't mean to be gross, but a disconnected body part will shrivel up and die and it'll just, it's just gross. So here's my encouragement to you. Don't be gross. <laughs> be connected, be engaged, be re-engaged. God's will. You want to know what God's will for you is? I don't even have to know you. God's will for you is to be all in on the local church. It is the very center of his purpose here on earth. That's why I could say it so confidently. So be a part of the local church. For a few things I just would give you to, to make this practical. And then um, uh, number one, I get convinced and hopefully you're convinced. But the second thing, I want to encourage you to, to be a disciple. And um, not generally Christian, be a disciple. Um, a, dis a disciple is like, I've got a decision to make. J Jesus, I've got a decision to make. How would you make it? And if you're thinking like, well, that, you know, that doesn't sound very scary. You know, being a disciple, that's not very, you know, it's good to get advice from Jesus. And Jesus, you know, he probably gives pretty good advice. Except that when you're a disciple, um, you just don't take what Jesus says under consideration, like one of the opinions. Um, in other words, when you go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I've got a decision to make. How would you make it? But before you answer, I just want you to know my answer is yes. Whatever your answer is, my answer is yes. A disciple lives obeying what Jesus has asked you to do. And obedience, for those who are parents know this, obedience is not the same thing as agreement. You don't, in fact, most people think, if you will explain it to me and if you will convince me, then I will do it. 
Try parenting that way and come back to me and let's see if you have any hair left. Obedience is, actually the only way to be obedient is when you actually don't understand and don't agree, but you do it anyway because you, you trust the person who's asking you. And he's pretty trustworthy. I mean, he died and everything for you, so. That's a lot different than I've got to check the Christian box. That's a lot narrow of outcomes and how you spend your money, how you parent, how you engage your neighbors, how you think about marriage and sex. I mean, and that's why community is so huge. You can be generally Christian all on your own. Just get your podcast, get your Bible studies, get your coffee cup by the mountain and just post your little Instagram and how wonderful your morning is and all of that. You can be generally Christian all on your own. You cannot be a disciple on your own. If you're a disciple, every once in a while, you, once a month minimum, you need someone just to tell you that you're not crazy for doing what you're doing. Because you are going against the grain of culture. You can be, so be, be a disciple. Secondly, publicly profess Jesus as Christ. That is, be a witness. Um, I heard the story of this older woman walks into a church and, and says to the usher, can I, can I sit in the front row? And the usher's like, yeah, you can do that, but I got to warn you, our, our preacher's kind of boring. And I'm just afraid that you're just going to fall asleep in the front row and, and embarrass yourself. I just got to warn you that. And she, this woman looks at the usher a little bit indignant, says, hey, do you know who I am? And the usher's like, no, I'm sorry, I don't. And, and she's like, well, I'm the, I'm the pastor's son. Or sorry, I'm the, the pastor is my son. I'm, I'm the pastor's mom. And the, and the usher got all, you know, he goes, oh my gosh, I've done something here. And so the, and then, the, then the usher says, well, do you know who I am? And she said, no, I don't. And he's like, good, and then walked out. And so anyway, um, <laughs> sometimes being anonymous works out for you. Uh, but it is not allowed in the kingdom of God. It's not allowed. It's not allowed. And, and this may help a few because we all get uh, mixed up on this. Number one, we're called to be witnesses. We're, called, we're not called to be defense attorneys. The, a defense attorney, we think our job is to win the case. That's a, that's a defense attorney. That's what the, and, we're, and you're not it. Your job is not to win the case. Pressure's off. You're a witness. What does a witness do? A witness says, this is my side of the story. This is my side of the story. You just tell your side of the story. You get in the booth and you tell your side of the story. I was blind and now I see. Well, wait a minute. What, 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 did, he, what did he do? I don't know. I don't know. You got to go talk to him. All I know is I was blind and now I see. You know, Nathaniel, Andrew, they're, they're, you know, hey, you got to come see this Jesus. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I don't know. That's a great question. Just come and see. I don't know. This is what Jesus has done for me. Your job is to be a witness. Just tell your side of the story. And this is one of the reasons why our faith has to be fresh, because I think enthusiasm matters. But all you do is tell your side of the story. The second thing is, is that when we think about fishing, we typically think about it being an individual. Uh, uh, it doesn't sound good, but that's OK. Uh, and I got to be honest with you, it distracted me. But we think about when we think about fishing, we think about an individual rod. We think about an individual reel with a lure. When we think about fishing. And that's the way we think about evangelism. When you fish with an individual rod uh, and, a, and a lure, my, my dad and I try to go fishing all the time. We got a boat. We got this technology and tr the depth of the water and the temperature. And the si When you fish like that, the, the key is, is technique. It's technique. It's all about technique. But in this fish, in first century fishing, it was with nets. It was a community thing. And, and, the, and the key to that kind of fishing was the strength and the size of the net. And God never intended for you to be this isolated, you know, I'm going to be 
you know, like, you know, Frank Turk, and I'm just going to nail down every objection. I'm going to win the case, and I'm going to get really good at apologetics. And that's not, that's not what God had in mind at all. What God had in mind, what he wants to do is that he wants to make you a net as a community. And he wants a big net. And he wants a strong net that's tight together. And he wants to cast you out into all the subcultures of the world to, to get a catch. And it's a community thing. It's not an individual thing. So be a disciple. Don't just be generally Christian. And remember your call to publicly profess Jesus. If you do these things, I'm telling you, the church will move forward. And for 2,000 years, no weapon formed against the church has prospered. There is no good explanation for it other than that Jesus really is the Son of God who died on a middle cross between two thieves, was buried according to scriptures, rose on the third day according to scriptures. It is a mind-boggling reality that Christianity even made it out of the first century. How did it survive? It survived because the gates of hell did not prevail against the resurrecting power of Jesus. And what you and I preach, you and I do not preach morality. You and I do not preach, hey, join the church and become a better person. We do not preach morality. We preach resurrecting hope. We preach the resurrection hope of Jesus. This is the confession. This is the confession that the church is built on. It's not built on we're more moral, that we're better, that we have the answers. Our confession is that Jesus is the Christ. And outside of that confession, you and I ain't got a thing. First Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul would go later on and say that you, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, Christians should be considered the most pathetic group in all the world. And this is just, I mean, what are we doing here if he hasn't been risen from the dead? For three days, Christianity was over. It was over. All the momentum that Jesus had created on his earthly ministry was over, done, finished. His miracles were not enough. His teaching was not enough. Nobody was standing outside the grave that morning, 10, 9, it's going to happen any minute, 7, 6. Nobody was expecting this. But the resurrection of Jesus changed everything. That's why for 2,000 years, Christians have historically gathered on Sunday, recognizing that this is all built upon the confession that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the one who beat the grave. And because he rose, you too can rise. And all of this is built on him, for him, through what he has done. Because he rose, we shall rise and live in the resurrected life with, my brothers and sisters, a resurrected calling. Would you stand with me? We serve a king who did not require that his subjects die for him, but he died for his subjects. And in exchange, he didn't say, now that I've laid down my life for you, you lay down your life for me. That's not what he said. He said, I want you to go lay down your life for others. Because he gave his life for us, we now go and give our lives for others. And we can have confidence in this because he rose from the grave. So that we can spend our life to, into the ground, like Paul, at the end of his life. He said, I, mean, I feel like a drink offering just poured out. I just gave it all. We can give it all. Jesus gave it all for us. And we can leave here. We can leave here in confidence, not in the externals, not in the fact that even people appreciate, like our message, agree with it, but because of Jesus Christ, that he rose from the grave and that he said, I will build my church. He is building his church. He is calling people to himself. We just stay true to him as disciples and we tell our side of the story. We follow and trust him, obey him, do what he says, 
Let's not lose our saltiness. Let's be the salt of the earth. Let's, let's not hide our light under a bush. Oh no, don't do that. Let's shine bright for him. Jesus, we just thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your building of the, of the church. God, we want to leave here this weekend as disciples. We don't want to be generally Christian. Lord, we want to, we want to take you seriously. Lord, we don't want to build on anything else. We want to build a foundation on you, your word, your life. God, I pray, Lord, will you embolden us as witnesses? God, will we live freshly in your grace, keenly aware of all that you've done for us and, to, and be bold in, in telling our side of the story. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I just want to pray for those here. You're, you're laying your hand on specifically. Lord, some who've maybe disengaged. God, that you're, re, that you're calling to re-engage. And maybe perhaps there's someone that's been considering just a big step forward. God, would you speak to that, speak a word of confidence to that person? Thank you, Lord, that it's not up to our brilliance and wisdom. Lord, you're doing this, you're building. Lord, we don't, we know, we know how it started and we know how it's gonna end. We don't know what's gonna happen in the middle. But God, we wanna be faithful to the end. We wanna be faithful to your call to the very end. Lord Jesus, running the race that you put before us.